0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1945, at the grim conclusion of World War II, Europe lay in ruins, devastated both physically and psychologically. On today's podcast, I'll be discussing the mission to build a new world after the war with the historian Paul Betts, Paul, a professor of history at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, is the author of Ruin and Renewal, which explores how post-war regeneration was inspired by the contested concept of civilization and examines some of the competing visions for Europe's future. What was the state of play in Europe when the war drew to a close in 1945? Can you give us a sense of the levels of destruction, not just in terms of bombed out buildings or material destruction, but also in terms of society and psychology?
1: For good reason. People have talked about 1945 as being a massive caesura in European and global Uh, Affairs. It is one, of course, in which you have devastated uh, European landscapes, the destruction of cities, uh, whole peoples, the targeting of civilians in ways never seen before. So what we're looking at then is a story of kind of physical, um, cultural and moral ruins. And I think this book is an effort to try to come to terms of what in fact had happened. So this is really a book that kind of reconsiders the kind of remaking of Europe in the wake uh, of Nazism, the Second World War. And of course, there have been many other books that have done that sort of thing in the past. Uh, but this is uh, looking at, for example, uh, Cold War division, uh, stabilization in both blocks, um, economic recovery and political uh, reconstruction. And I was, in a sense, trying in this book to return to the moment of this physical and moral ruin of 1945, in which it offered people uh, both a kind of radical reckoning and an opportunity uh, to make things new. And some people then more in the collapse of civilization, but many, many more people were dedicated to its rebuilding. So it was a a massive and demanding project of physical reconstruction, cultural regeneration, and moral renewal. And so what I found interesting about this is that, you know, why this particular idea of re-civilizing Europe was so important to so many people for so long.
0: Well, that is uh, what I wanted to ask you about next. That running throughout the book is this key term, civilization, and the attempt to re-civilize um, post-war Europe. I think that civilization is quite a controversial um, term at the moment. What do you mean by civilizing, and why was it such a potent idea in Europe after 1945?
1: It's a difficult term to. Define And many people have tried, and I think with a great deal of shortcomings, I mean, at its most basic, it's kind of set of beliefs about origins, achievements, customs, and values of a political community, kind of identities at risk. Civilization is uh, a vision of history that connects the past and the present and often flashes up. In moments of danger, an effort to kind of repair uh, the relationship between past and present, and, uh, Kenneth Clark, in his famous 1969 television series on civilization, uh, asked at one point, what is civilization? And he re- replied by saying, I don't know, and I can't define it in abstract terms, but I know it when I see it. Now, for every for a lot of people, um, we may not subscribe to this kind of breezy, patrician confidence in identifying, but it became a very, very tricky one, uh, one that's often very intimidating and abstract for people. Civilization uh, is a term without any obvious uh, emblems or flags. uh, You know, we think of possibly crusader banners, cathedrals, and McDonald's as symbols of Western civilization, but they didn't originate as such. So, the term is very elusive. It's hard to pin down. Uh, It exceeds the nation state, religious identity, or any singular people. So, that way, it's actually material and transcendent. And I found that the term civilization is made real through belief, vision, an argument about the inheritance of history. So it's, in a sense, a kind of way of seeing and acting. Now, the question is, of course, what has happened to that? And the book uh, plots out this kind of open sense of uh, the discussion of civilization in 1945 that brings together a range of different voices. Uh, And what this book is about in a sense to kind of uh, recall the very open quality of the discussion in which uh, civilization was not linked to uh, war, uh, violence and, uh, defense of racial identities could be linked to a range of other things, including peace, multiculturalism, and trying to build a different world.
0: Um, you spoke there about people, um, invoking the term civilization, um, to talk about building a new world after the ruin of World War II. What were some of the competing visions for Europe's future? Because of course they weren't all, all unified, were they?
1: No, and that's what I found interesting in doing this kind of work is that there's a real contest for civilization in terms of what it could be. Now, also interesting in this period is that the whole idea of civilization was much less elitist and much less uh, Eurocentric. It was often tied to issues of peace, expanded welfare state, social solidarity, and kind of refined Everyday interaction. And what I found particularly interesting is that civilization moves from being just an abstract idea uh, to one that encompassed a broad range of practical. So it wasn't a story in which it was just elites talking, but people actually doing things, a whole set of practices. And this could include things like uh, humanitarian relief, uh, international justice, uh, even military occupation. And the language of civilization, not surprisingly, was early on geared toward the remaking of Germany and Germans uh, in both halves. Of Europe, the Germans could also mean projects like church restoration, cathedral restoration, uh, a range of others, including architects and archaeologists were were keen on the term, but it also had this. Conservative element too. Uh, conservative reactionary. The defense of empire was put in terms of a defense of civilization. The assertion of militant Christianity, uh, racism, anti-immigration. So what you have then is a whole set of competing views and visions about what Europe was, uh, what it what it. And what it could be so one that tied together kind of past the present and the future around this idea of a kind of reconstruction of the continent.
0: Um, I want to ask you about some of those practical elements of reconstruction in a minute. But first, you mentioned there about this conception of what Europe was at the time. Um, how do you think that Europe's place in the world had been redefined by the Second World War or its, its perception of its own place in the world?
1: I mean, one way of seeing that, of course, is the uh, famous um, meeting of the United Nations in, you know, spring of 1945, in which a range of uh, representatives from countries were there to devise a to devise a new peace, a new world order, uh, in which uh, a range of, of countries there were there to discuss its ramifications. And that was kind of an important moment. Of, um, of, of trying to move forward, but one in which the fate of Europe was being decided, in this case, mostly by foreigners, uh, those people that are on the verge of military victory and the sense in which there was a, a kind of uh, opportunity For its reconstruction and the kind of language around the United Nations as a new kind of grand mission uh, to kind of re civilize uh, Europe and the rest of the world. You had a lot of competing voices even then, and certainly in no way were they univocal. You had a number of people that were, in a sense, inspired by the hope of creating something uh, better than, uh, than they had at the end of the First World War, a number of Let's say uh, African-American uh, intellectuals, Paul Robeson, W.D.B. Du Bois, uh, in a sense, were uh, pushing very hard for uh, clauses or at least principles of racial equality in the sense that civilization begins uh, with overturning the most uh, heinous aspects of the Nazi legacy. Uh, feminists there were also pushing for more equality. Uh, uh, between men and women. Those people will then be disappointed, but the language of civilization there, uh, in a sense, informs a range of discussions about actually how to build uh, a post-war Europe and a post-war world, in which this becomes a kind of favorite term as kind of language of reconstruction, which is very much tied to, as I was suggesting before, to ideas of peace and prosperity. For the most part, it's a Western European interests from 1945 through the mid-60s, but with time, uh, the Soviet Union and Eastern European states, and then a range of African partners in the 60s and 70s also uh, get interested in the term as well.
0: Yeah. Well, you said that um, just made me think of something in the book I found really intriguing, which was that um, there was this idea of a zero hour at the end of um, the Second World War that there was a tabula rasa, a blank slate to start again. Um, do you think that that meant that people with more progressive agendas, such as feminism or um, civil rights, were able to push forward their, their um, agendas in a way that they wouldn't have been able to if there'd been a more, less of a rupture with the past?
1: I mean, this perceived sense of rupture did provide enormous opportunity to kind of rethink the direction and values of not just Europe and the wider world. So it became an opportunity for a number of people dedicated to radical reform. Again, uh, people, uh, anti-imperialists, uh, feminists, uh, pacifists, uh, to kind of come together and push hard for a different kind of Europe. So that was certainly there uh, and that way, um, some people had a stake in calling this a zero hour, and that gave them a kind of tabula rasa to start afresh, to kind of wipe clean the pernicious values of uh, not just uh, Nazism and the war, but this uh, 18th, 19th uh, century legacy. Of elitism, racism, and imperialism, they thought there was a chance to start over. But it also, at times, uh, masked hidden ideas of continuity. And so, part of what you have after 1945 is a kind of salvage operation to kind of sift through elements and traditions from the past that were usable and could be salvaged. Let's say for Western Europe, you know, ideas of liberalism, Eastern Europe that might be. An idea of, of, uh, of, of socialism over the course of the 18th and 19th century, but for a lot of activist groups, it became a chance then to build on uh, what they felt to be positive and affirmative uh, uh, traditions from the past to try to build a new and fresh post-war order.
0: Part of moving forward was, of course, dealing with the past and meeting out justice um, for atrocities committed in the war, most notably, of course, at the Nuremberg um, trials. Why do you think that they was deemed such an important part of post-war regeneration and moving forward?
1: Yes, this was, uh, again, for the most part, led by the Americans, though the British, French, and the Soviets, with time, came around to the idea this is quite important. And its, it's critics and cynics argue, argue that this was a kind of a liberal version of a show trial. But it was one in which um, it was an effort to make good on the promises of the Second World War. And since they, this is not just an effort to defeat Nazi Germany militarily, but one also to confront it's uh, pernicious legacy as a kind of foundation or building block. Uh, of the post-war order. A number of uh, intellectuals, including people like H.G. Wells, talked about the Second World War as a kind of uh, battle or defense of civilization. The Soviet Union, surprisingly, also used some of this language in building their wartime alliance with the West. And it was also a term that uh, found its way in Soviet newspapers in terms of the kind of high moral and transcendent stakes of this battle Against uh, against fascism, but it was one in which they were using this trial as a way of kind of announcing. Uh, a new world order one in which um, the enemies of uh, of the of the west and the soviet Union will then be uh, put in the dock and then uh, brought to book uh, for these new crimes and of course it's a long story in terms of the kind of neologisms that come out of the Nuremberg trials crimes against humanity uh, being the most famous and the and the squeamishness on the part of a number of international lawyers in terms of uh, the idea of of applying kind of retroactive justice justice to these uh, Nazi figures in the dock, But it was certainly one in which uh, they felt that this was a moment in which it was a kind of union of uh, international justice, wartime alliance, as a way of setting this international order in a new way uh, that actually took uh, these particular crime seriously, and one of which tried to then move uh, Europe and European civilization in new directions. It was actually quite interesting in how powerful and present the language of civilization was uh, in this particular trial. And the same thing I should say was there for the Tokyo trials, as well as, as, a, kind of a, uh, as a kind of corollary. To what in fact was happening in Europe? The idea that the re-civilization of Europe and the re-civilization of Japan begin then with the uh, with the um, embracing and the celebration of international law as the kind of moral uh, and political uh, foundation of a post-fascist Europe.
0: These big trials convey the um, the judgment almost of the international community. Um, and governments. But what's also just as intriguing that you look at in the book is the sense among ordinary people about forgiving former enemies. Was there a general feeling among the people of Europe to forgive and forget, or did grudges run deep? And how do you kind of uncover the grassroots feeling in that sense?
1: I mean, the grudges did run very deep. There was a great deal of anger and Revenge, of course, in nineteen forty five this uh, taking it out on on people, collaborators in their midst, famous instances, of course, in uh, France, Holland, and all the areas under. Nazi occupation in which the kind of rough justice was meted out uh, toward people who were accused of having relations with the Germans. So, in a kind of bout of uh, recrimination and quite brutal violence. So, that was certainly there uh, to the point where uh, Robert Jackson, who was overseeing the Nuremberg trials in a sense, made this clear that we need to stay the hand of vengeance I was fully aware that 1945 uh, um, unleashed a huge amount of, of kind of vengeful violence in 1945. So that certainly was there, but there were other impulses. I mean, for example, in the book, I was very surprised uh, that the work of someone like uh, Victor Golans, the uh, London publicist, who very early on uh, felt that um, 1945 and the British occupation of Germany was a kind of referendum on the values of British civilization. In other words, he felt that uh, he was fully aware of the very difficult situation in terms of the influx of refugees coming in from central Europe Central Europe in the British zone and the difficulties of uh, of provisioning uh, these people with food and medicine, uh, he himself had taken a tour there. In 1946, 1947, British civilization began with with treating its ex-enemies in a decent and dignified manner. That if civilization stood for anything, it's in a sense to... to uh, turn back toward their former enemies and treat them with the uh, respect and appreciation that they deserve. Now, that was not surprisingly a very, very controversial position uh, to advance in 1945 in Britain, given the amount of, let's say, propaganda and efforts to demonize the Germans as the enemy. But he was you know, very, very effective. He brought a number of politicians, intellectuals to his side. He Founded this uh, Save Europe Now movement, which sent a number of parcels uh, of of food uh, to Germans. A number of British citizens then were even giving up their ration cards to help uh, former enemies. Um, So that was actually quite a remarkable a uh, show of uh, not just restraint, but forgiveness and forbearance. And the, not surprisingly, too, is that the Christian churches uh, come into play in which they'll argue that uh, that the, uh, let's the Germans in particular were Christians in need. So part of this was not just an idea of British civilization, but a huge amount of uh, humanitarian relief flowing in from the United States and Britain uh, toward, uh, the Germans in the name of restoring Christian values and Christian civilization. So there was a, it went in both ways. There was a great deal of anger, of vengeance, um, uh, recrimination, but there was also an effort to, to, Turn the page and try to think about um, bringing uh, the Central Europeans and the Germans uh, back into the kind of family of so-called civilized nations, and to build a new post-war order which can draw a line out from the past. So that was actually quite surprising to me in terms of just how powerful that was. Interesting, too, of course, is that with the revelations about the uh, concentration camps, a huge amount of shock. And uh, anger, not surprisingly, toward uh, the Nazis in the dock then at Nuremberg. But very quickly by the autumn of 1945, it moves from a sympathy and assistance towards Jewish victims to one in which you come stories of uh, Christian solidarity, transatlantic Christian solidarity in terms of the idea of aiding and assisting uh, German uh, war survivors. And that that shift from an interest in the camps to one in which about helping um, destitute war survivors, often in the name of a kind of um, celebration of, of a kind of a Christian solidarity, surprised me how quickly that had taken place over uh, the course of 1945.
0: That's really interesting, because I think today, so much of our conception of um, the horrors and the ruin of World War II is focused on the Holocaust and the suffering of, of the Jews. But you suggest that in the immediate post war era, that maybe wasn't the focus in the same way.
1: It was certainly there with the revelation of the camps in the spring uh, in 1945. Uh, that was certainly the motivation for bringing the uh, Nazi elite to, uh, to book. Uh, in a sense, to expose to the world uh, the terrible, terrible crimes that the uh, that the Germans then had committed uh, to give that not just international publicity, but to help uh, reschool the Germans in different values. And the whole justification for military occupation was in part uh, linked to uh, the horrors that were discovered in that spring. I'm no way of saying that that was not a key issue. It certainly was. But I was surprised that by the time the Nuremberg trials are kind of in full flow in that autumn, the story was starting to move in which you had uh, grassroots organizations Uh, that were linking the U.S., Britain, um, Canada, uh, Australia with uh, Germans in particular was starting to move to a story of um, Christian assistance and Christian forgiveness. Uh, And that was much stronger uh, there than, uh, than I expected. And Uh, Also, um, documentary photography plays an important role, and the British in particular, uh, they're photojournalists in terms of covering the action in the occupied zones in 1945, went from a a kind of... uh, documentary value of of what it looked like to be uh, in these refugee camps to one in which there's a great deal of compassion and pity shown toward the war survivors. And those photographs became quite important in starting to uh, shift the emotional language about the relationship between British occupier Uh, and uh, the local um, survivors on the ground. So I think actually in this particular moment, uh, photography and the kind of visual dimensions of compassion and pity played an important role in shifting the sensibility of, uh, in this case, uh, the British occupying forces and the people they were there to uh, govern.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast...
1: What do we do when we're facing these uh, very, very big problems, in this case, a planetary crisis? And what language do we use then to try to understand ourselves and to move forward? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match
0: Something that struck me is that amongst all this destruction, people did find space for optimism. Um, And I wanted to ask you about some of the um, ideas about building a new world and a brighter future and the forms that they took. So, of course, we've got industry and science, but also culture. And one of the really strange and intriguing things you look at are advice books um, in East and West Germany about manners as a kind of small example of the way that people were looking at rebuilding society in a more positive image.
1: Yes, I mean, the so-called manners manuals or etiquette books, um, if you look at the long history of them, uh, for the most part, the high points of their um, production is after periods of political upheaval. There's a great deal of the writing of etiquette books in the 1820s and again in the 1920s after major wars. But it's really the 1950s it's kind of the golden age of these manuals and they're often dismissed by historians as the kind of uh, you know fluff of history uh they're not particularly well written and they and they're and there it seems to be a kind of um uh, fleeting phenomenon by the, by the mid to late sixties as one, it seems like an embarrassing relic from the early post-war period. But they're actually quite important in this idea of recivilizing the self to try to, um, rebuild a society in which it's not just about military occupation and political reconstruction and economic stabilization. There's something that had to filter down to the everyday aspects, the everyday interactions, of people, and of course, these had traditionally been stories of middle class comportment, middle class behavior, and this is one in which it's an effort to try to refine the interactions of everyday life. For example, a number of these books were often directed at young men, uh, young men who were coming back from war service. Uh, so the sense was that they had been socialized in a brutal world of war combat and didn't really have any. Uh, clear uh, ability just to interact with people in a kind of polite and refined way. So, the kind of re-education of young men was the kind of target um, group for a lot of these books. And what I found su- surprising was just how powerful and present these books were also in Eastern Europe. Uh, there were a number of these efforts to kind of not only rebuild a social society from the ground up, but in a sense, take seriously uh, the kind of refinement of what it meant to be a social citizen, how to shake hands properly, how to greet people in the in the tram, how to uh, discuss, uh, let's say, politics at the dinner table, how to... Uh, you know which which fork to use, uh, how to how to behave at the cinema or the opera house. All these ways, in a sense, to, to says, suggest that these social societies are coming out of the war experience. They're moving from uh, a world based on the kind of their peasant or working class uh, identities to usher in a new kind of socialist culture. And so, these uh, etiquette books are actually quite important as kind of indicators. Of, uh, of what has changed and where they hoped they were going. Of course, there were differences. I mean, the Western European uh, etiquette books had a tendency to be a little bit more middle class and, uh, and they had a tendency to respect the division between public life and private life. The etiquette books in the West were more geared toward what people did in what we call the public sphere, outside at work. Um, well, the Eastern European books uh, were one in which, interestingly enough, they kind of erase the, the uh, boundaries between public and private. I often talk about issues of, of grooming, behavior at home, how to interact with family members. And so that, that, rel- uh, that, that tension between public and private is one in which uh, the Eastern European etiquette books is not respected in any way in the same way.
0: Um, Just to change topic a bit now, um, we've kind of alluded to this throughout, but obviously an important aspect of your book is is not just about Europe itself, but also the rest of the world and the legacy of empire. How did changing ideas about civilization in in the post-war era affect Europe's relationship with its former or current colonial states?
1: I mean, one thing that's interesting about civilization is, of course, it carries very heavy historical baggage. I mean, it's a baggage of 18th century elitism, 19th century imperialism, racism, and war making. And it was one early on that, uh, let's say, the early Soviet Union uh, dismissed as an unwanted part of a Western imperial cultural heritage. I mean, Lenin Uh, Trotsky, Stalin occasionally would talk about the term, but more in this effort that the Bolsheviks stood for overturning a hierarchy of civilizations toward one they would... instead replaced with a kind of horizontal, kind of separate but equal idea of civilizations worldwide. So they gave some credence to this idea that the Bolsheviks uh, stood for something very, very different. And at times, they use this idea of civilization against the West, but it's not a term that's very powerful there. It does kind of resurface in the Second World War and at the Nuremberg Trials, matter of fact, and, and then it's really in their interactions with the 1960s. Uh, with uh, the um, you know with what we now call the global South, with Asia and Africa, so that's important. Um, but I'll, I think what's what's really interesting is the way in which ex-colonies in Africa use the term uh, to turn the tables on their former European masters. Now, again, I imagine for some listeners this is surprising because so much of Postcolonial studies uh, is partly based on this idea of dismissing this vocabulary as exactly that which is unwanted, a kind of uh, imperial racist uh, dark patrimony. That needs and had to be discarded. There's a certain amount of truth in that. We think of figures like uh, Franz Fanon or Aimé Césaire um, in terms of the rejection of the term. And even if you look at someone like Césaire, he talks about the de-civilization of Europe, and that's how he understands something like imperialism. But he does hold out the possibility that the civilization itself is not the problem; it's the arrogant European sense that they have monopolized the term. And so he does talk about, let's say, African civilization. And I was really struck by how uh, some of the African elites, the leaders of new independent African countries like Kwame Kruma in Ghana or Leopold Seda Senghor in Senegal, uh, would use this term uh, as a way of kind of marking out uh, the sense of political sovereignty and independence. So the re- term was not rejected outright, but and they, but rather there was an assertion of this idea of African civilization as, as part of a world of multiple and equal civilizations. And for them, they're very keen to emphasize that no continent, least of all Europe, enjoyed a monopoly or advanced position and that the, the re- Discovery of the reclamation of African civilization was then a key moment of post-colonial arrival and sovereignties. So there were other moments, for example, with the Algerian War, uh, with a fight between the French and the Algerians in 1954 to 1962, a very bloody, difficult, uh, and arduous war, just um, one that was fought on the on the on the. Um, Battlefields of Algeria, but also one that was fought in the world of media and public relations. And in this effort on the part of the liberation front of the Algerian fighters, and how shrewd and savvy they were to use this language of civilization against the French, often accusing the French of Uh, of this barbaric uh, activities, the issue of torture, for example. Uh, They would frame with this idea that these are, you know, the French have lost their way, in a sense, breaching their own uh, concepts of civilization. The FLN uh, set up a publicity office in New York to make a case to the international community about uh, French uh, breaches of honor, rights, and civilization. Uh the French, of course, not surprisingly fought back. Uh, they, in a sense, would also argue that the Algerian fighters were uncivilized, barbaric, accuse them. Of brutally treating uh, French soldiers, and both sides were producing very graphic and uh, gruesome photo books to, in a sense, drive home the point in very emotional, uh, rhetorical, and visual language of what the other side was up to. So, civilization itself becomes a kind of battlefield from both sides to make their case uh, to international uh, international community about what in fact is happening and how important this was uh, in the story.
0: You spoke a little bit about this. Uh, but I just wanted to ask in more detail, what about socialist agendas in these decolonizing countries?
1: That's also very interesting because like I was saying before, we think of the socialist world from the very beginning as being um, bent against using this language. It's exactly the language of of Western imperialism that they did reject. But after 1945, that's not really so much the case. Again, it will float up here and there, as I was mentioned before, but it's in the... In the socialist world's interaction with Asia and Africa in the 1960s, this kind of enormous thrust outward to build political, military, economic, and cultural links uh, with uh, possible Asian-African counterparts, where that term starts to um, it starts to uh, resurface and ends up being conceptualized differently. For example, we're then with the new word socialist civilization. And so this becomes part of their idea of kind of soft power initiatives, um, educational labor exchanges, folk festivals, archaeology projects, uh, literary events, um, uh, film, uh, film festivals, all this idea of fortifying the alliance between Eastern Europe uh, and Asian Africa, Africa in particular, around the cause of international socialism. So this language of of social c- civilization was used as a way of saying that socialism actually, unlike uh, the Americans in the West, where they're driving them on in the name of modernization, the socialists were also, of course, interested in helping modernize these countries, but they were very keen to uh, make sure that these new African polities in particular were still linked uh, to ancient past. So, the socialist world will sponsor a number of archaeology projects, uh, very interested in African antiquity, uh, with this idea of drawing a link between the ancient African past and a modernizing what they felt to be non-capitalist uh, future. So this idea of building new bridges, new partnerships between Eastern Europe uh, and Africa was it was a key dimension of uh, of these uh, links in the 1960s. And social civilization was often the bridge term they used as a way of trying to uh, build these alliances and kind of fellowships uh, with their partners in the global South.
0: So my, my final question would just be, where can we see the legacy of All of this today. How is our world shaped by decisions made in the post war period?
1: Well, I mean, I guess with the pandemic, we live in another uh, caesura. I think we're just getting a sense just how big and important it is. And I can imagine uh, historians uh, will be writing about this for quite a long time. Um, But if you look at, let's say, how something like a term like civilization, uh, so we now live in a world in which I think that term has become very much the property of the radical right kind of a justification for uh, xenophobic nationalism, uh, racism, anti-immigration. That was not the case, I think, from the 40s through the 1970s. And so, um, it looks as if it's one in which there's there are very few um people or organizations dedicated to remembering its more complex and uh contested past now that 's not completely true an organization like UNESCO, which is still uh, a key organization dedicated to maintaining what they call world civilization and did a lot of good work, but there seems to be among uh uh, environmental uh, environmentalists, also a range of others that talk about uh, a new language of uh, the pandemic bringing something called universal civilization that in a sense the pandemic is a challenge to all of us and that we need to think beyond not just the nation state but uh, across regional blocks and a number of journalists. And uh, commentators have uh, suggested that it's, you know, that the idea of a kind of universal civilization may be a language on which we can draw to kind of think uh, in a more uh, collective sense. I mean, uh, in that way, the term interestingly mirrors something like humanity, which is also a very powerful term that had a kind of like civilization, kind of 18th century origins and then often was uh, used and at times abused to defend uh, a range of different projects. but uh, in the last 20 30 years those terms human rights with uh, humanity civilization seem to be very much under attack. And I think what you have of the pandemic is a more of a tendency to think more universally to think about the species specific, ways, what is our uh, understanding and connections across continents, and how we can then find our way through this public health crisis, and what language we will use. And I think um, this book on some levels uses Europe as a case study for what happens when civilization sits in ruins, and what is the, uh, what is the effort on the part of lots of different voices and actors to try to resuscitate it. Uh, for good and for ill, but I think it's a case study of a much broader issue about what do we do when we're facing these uh, very, very big problems, in this case, a planetary crisis, and what language do we use then to try to understand ourselves and to move forward?
0: That was Paul Betts. His book, Ruin and Renewal, is on sale now, published by Profile. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on the history of the NHS.